You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. In William Peter Blatty's 1971 religious horror novel, The Exorcist, as well as the 1973 film based on the book, a demon named Pazuzu possesses a young girl and must be cast out by a stoic and dutiful Catholic priest. In the beginning of both the book and the film, the titular exorcist is present at an archaeological dig in Iraq, at which is uncovered a statue of Pazuzu, ancient Mesopotamian king of the Lilu, or wind demons. This demon appears to be a chimera, with wings, bulging eyes on a canine face, feet like the talons of a bird of prey, and a serpent wound around his phallus and leg. A surface reading of the book, or viewing of the film, might cause one to think that the exorcist himself was ironically responsible for somehow freeing the demon by digging up the statue. But what was intended seems more like a portent of the imminent confrontation the exorcist will have with Pazuzu, whom he has struggled with before. However, it would seem that maybe Blatty chose poorly or researched only shallowly when deciding what Assyrian demon should be his antagonist. Pazuzu, in one aspect, was a domestic spirit of the home, and even in its more fearsome aspect, as depicted in the statue, was considered a protector. The Lilu wind demons were considered evil spirits, it's true, and Pazuzu chief among them, in that they were related to destructive winds and locusts that brought famine but they weren't associated with danger to youth. Quite the opposite, Pazuzu was called upon to drive off other demons. His statue was used as an apotropaic, an amulet, especially to protect the young from one particular demoness, Lamashtu. This she-demon, sometimes viewed as an evil goddess, was depicted much the same as Pazuzu, with talon feet, and sometimes holding a snake, but hairier, without wings, and with the head of a lioness. According to Mesopotamian lore, she brought disease and nightmares, harmed women giving birth, abducted and slayed children, drank their blood, and chewed on their bones. Now there's a villain Blatty might have made the torturer of a possessed child. 
but the lore of ancient Mesopotamian demons is all confused now. It has been combined and recombined with other folklore, evolving as the basis for new superstitions incorporated into religion after religion, as the lines between what must have once seemed real figures have been syncretistically blurred. Here we see the protector become the ravager, but so too we see the evolution of Lamashtu, who eventually became identified with the Lilu, her nature rewritten through the ages, reinvented by medieval Kabbalists who gave birth to an apocryphal legend. This is historical blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd, your catechist for the day, and in this apocryphal catechism, I'll be instructing you in the nature and history of Lilith, the Phantom Maiden. Before the episode, I want to thank my newest patron, Bill, and special thanks to partner patron Jonathan for his increased pledge amount. I'm glad you enjoyed the episode on superstition. This one is basically still about superstition. I really appreciate all my patrons. If you pledge on Patreon, you can get ad-free and exclusive episodes. I always release one Minnesota month at bare minimum, but I'm often able to do more than one. For example, in October, between parts one and two of my series on vampires, I released two relevant minisodes. And after my episode on superstition, I released one about beliefs in fairies and changelings. Patron feeds also get episodes early, and as mentioned, their episodes are not interrupted by advertisements or Patreon pitches like this. So visit patreon.com slash historicalblindness and support the show. Or you can support the show by making a one-time donation at historicalblindness.com slash donate or at the PayPal link in the show notes or on Venmo at historicalblindness. Now... On with the episode. Welcome to Historical Blindness. As with my previous episode on superstitions, this topic occurred to me rather organically while researching my Halloween series on vampire lore. Claims that lore about vampires extends all the way back to ancient myth are common. I looked into the assertions about links to Greek myth and the so-called vampire Bible, the Delphi scriptures, and found it utterly unconvincing and lacking support. I mentioned that at the end of my series. However, there are other prevalent claims that the lore and superstitions about vampires can be traced back to the figure of Lilith, and before her, Lamashtu. Unlike the supposed myth of Ambrosio, there is a lot of real history and folklore to unpack here, tangled up in syncretistic iterations, and I was not prepared to discuss its impact on vampire lore then. I am now. The connection seems clear enough. It is said that Lamashtu drank the blood of children. However, we know that the original vampire lore, deriving from claims about revenants, often had little to do with actual blood drinking. 
Also, to claim that Lilith was the prototypical vampire really doesn't work, since she was known more for strangling than drinking blood, as we'll see. Moreover, vampires are and always were the risen dead, humans transformed because of the circumstances of their death and burial or due to the influence of the devil. Their nature can be attributed to the various aspects of a decomposing corpse dug up by those who suspected its posthumous activity. In no way does this correspond to these spirits and deities who were never human and appear as animal hybrids. Yes, I'll get to the claims about Lilith's human origin, but that's irrelevant here, since according to her origin, as you'll see, she was not a human or undead. Moreover, revenants were never known to attack only children. The entire claim seems predicated on the detail about Lamashtu's blood drinking, like someone went looking for the first ever thing thought to drink blood and then made the unsupportable assertion that there was some direct line of folkloric descent from that legend to vampires. A more logical but equally insupportable claim would be that the blood-drinking aspect of vampires derived from parasites, known to suck blood like leeches or mosquitoes, which also spread disease like malaria, dengue fever, and yellow fever, though we didn't know it back then. But on another level, there are some clear parallels between folklore and superstition about vampires and those about Lamashtu and Lilith. As with Revenants, Lamashtu was a scapegoat, blamed for the spreading of disease, likely blamed for sleep paralysis since she was thought to bring nightmares, and held responsible for any number of illnesses that might result in a child's death or the death of a mother during childbirth. Lamashtu was even said to kill the unborn, so she appears to have been the scapegoat for stillbirth as well. It is clear that the figure of Lilith descended in some ways from the demoness Lamashtu, and it is clear that she too served as a scapegoat for a number of misfortunes, some similar and some quite different, but her myth took on ever more strange aspects, and she developed amazing importance in more than one religious tradition. So let's begin with a look at the first real appearance of Lilith, not as a creature, but a woman, the so-called Phantom Maiden. I've spoken at some length in my series on giants and my series on flood myths and Noah's Ark about the Epic of Gilgamesh. In case this is your first episode, or you missed those others, the Epic of Gilgamesh is an ancient Mesopotamian epic poem that may have served as the source material for numerous biblical traditions. I spoke about the flood myth of Utnapishtim serving as the basis of the story of Noah. But additionally, there appear to be parallels and connections to the Genesis story of Adam and Eve in Eden. For example, the eating of the forbidden fruit appears to correspond to the Sumerian god Enki eating forbidden flowers and being cursed by his goddess wife, Ninhursag. 
and dying, each part of his body died. And when Ninhursag relented in her curse, giving birth to goddesses who would each heal a part of Enki's body, a special focus is given to his rib and the goddess Ninti, or Lady of the Rib. Indeed, the Sumerian word for rib, T, apparently also meant to make live. So Ninti meant both the Lady of the Rib and the Lady Who Makes Live. Some scholars believe that this ancient pun may be the origin for the part of the story of Genesis in which God makes a woman live from the rib of Adam. This aspect of the Genesis narrative will be very relevant to our discussion of Lilith later. But right now, what is more relevant is the story of the Hulupu tree, which some see as a parallel of, or perhaps the origin of, the story of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in which dwelled the serpent. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the goddess Inanna finds a primeval tree growing on the Euphrates River. In its roots, a snake or dragon nested, and in its uppermost branches, a massive fire-breathing bird. Inanna wants to make a throne and bed of the tree, but these creatures stood in her way. And worse than them, in the trunk of the tree, so the poem states, Lilith, the phantom maiden, made her home. The word translated as Lilith here is Lilake, meaning ghost or phantom. In the Sumerian king list, an ancient chronicle kept to legitimize and delegitimize the reigns of various rulers, it is said that Gilgamesh, the basis of the poem, who likely was a real king, was himself the son of a Lilu demon. There is a strong sense among scholars that gradually the monstrous she-demon Lamashtu and the evil Lilu wind demons like Pazuzu, who were called Lilitu in the feminine form, gradually came to be viewed as similar or the same such that the Lilake described in the Halupu tree was described as a ghostly young woman, a phantom maiden. Here is an inflection point in the development of the myth of Lilith. Gilgamesh drives the serpent from the tree roots, the great bird from its branches, and the phantom maiden from its trunk. And it is said that she flees from there into the wilderness or desert. It is there where we next find her. Only once in all of the Bible is Lilith mentioned, and even then the mention is dubious and demonstrates the nature of the figure, as well as how she changed through the ages. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 34, verses 13 and 14, as the 8th century Israel prophet, speaking of God's judgment on nations and listing the many misfortunes that will befall a nation being divinely judged, talks of wild beasts and other creatures overrunning it. Quote, Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals in abode for ostriches. Wild cats shall meet with hyenas, Goat demons shall call to each other. There also Lilith shall repose and find a place to rest." Quote. 
There is some debate about the historical context of the book of Isaiah, as well as its authorship, owing to changes in style and anachronisms that suggest everything after chapter 39 or 40 may have been written by a different later author. But this chapter that makes mention of Lilith, quoted here in the New Revised Standard Translation, is believed to represent the words of Proto-Isaiah, the prophet himself, who lived in the 8th century BCE in the kingdom of Judah. A closer look at the original Hebrew and a comparison of the various translations may help us better understand this reference. The word Lilith, taken in some translations as a proper name, is in other versions translated as Night Spirit, Night Monster, Night Demon, Night Hag, Night Animals, plural, Night Bird, and Screech Owl. Some versions even change the name entirely to Lamia, an analogous child-eating female spirit from Greek myth who seems to be yet another iteration of the original Lilith figure, likely itself derived from the ancient Lamashtu. But this is a leap, for the Hebrew word being translated is Lilith. I find the New Living Translation's choice to refer to a plural night creatures as apt, since otherwise the verses in question are referring to plural beasts taking residence in the desolate nation. Remember that the original basis for the name Lilith seems to have been the plural word for Mesopotamian wind demons, Lilu in the masculine and Lili or Lilitu in the feminine. Thus, the verse may not be referring to a singular figure as many have believed, but rather a class of demons. Many translations view the previous creatures mentioned as goat demons, sometimes translated as satyrs. Therefore, the verse would be describing both wild creatures and demons making the judged nation their abode. Other translations have it, however, that these verses are only describing wild creatures, specifically wild goats and they translate Lilith as a kind of bird or specifically a screech owl. This seems questionable to me since a few verses earlier in verse 11, an entirely different word is widely translated as screech owl. However, the mythical Lilith or particular examples of the class of demons called Lilithu had long been associated with owls. One terracotta relief out of Babylon, the Burney relief, has been discovered depicting her as a beautiful nude woman with wings and the feathered talon feet of an owl. And this image of her as a chimeric hybrid appears contemporaneous with the account in Isaiah, as on a 7th century BCE tablet out of Syria, the Arslan Tash amulet she is depicted as a kind of winged sphinx creature. Thus, she may have been viewed as both a demoness and a wild creature, as she had previously been portrayed nesting in a tree in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Strange, then, that she would later be viewed as so human, less beastly, and more beautiful.
To make a clear and striking juxtaposition, Lilith today is viewed as a dark and beautiful woman with long hair. When we aren't hearing about her as the progenitrix of vampires, she is thought to be the mother of all demons. Rather than originating as an offspring of a god, as did Pazuzu and Lamashtu, making her a kind of demigoddess, as were the demons from which her lore derives, she instead is claimed to have originated in paradise when the Judeo-Christian god created man and woman. She in fact is said to have been the first wife of Adam, formed from the dust just like him and therefore equal to him, not formed from a part of him like Adam's second wife, Eve, and thus not subservient to him. Because of this aspect of her myth, she has become something of a feminist icon, representing an empowered and co-equal gender whom Adam rejects for not acquiescing to his domination. Thus, Lilith, spurned but also defiant, sprouts wings and flies to freedom. In some depictions of her, like Pazuzu before her, she is associated with a serpent that winds itself around her, and as her myth developed, she became associated with the figure of Satan. Some tellings have it that she returned to Eden to tempt Eve, whom she resented, with the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Thus we see again Lilith nesting in the tree in paradise, as in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Other versions focus on her insatiable sexual appetite, and after her fall make her more of a succubus demon who returns to Adam to have intercourse with him, and from her unholy unions with Adam as well as other men, she conceives and gives birth to other demons, an entire race of succubi and incubi, called Lilin. And so once again we return in a roundabout fashion to the notion that Lilith is not unique, but rather one of an entire race of demons with similar attributes and behavior. But how did we get from the notion of Lilith as the later version of Lamashtu, a wild animalistic demoness, part bird who devours children, to the notion that she was one of God's first creations, made in his image in paradise. The answer is that it was invented, whole cloth, during the Middle Ages, in an apocryphal work of Aramaic and Hebrew proverbs. Now for a brief intermission. What really happened on the unsinkable Titanic? What made the 1904 St. Louis Marathon the strangest event in Olympic history? Whatever became of missing boy Bobby Dunbar? And who was the child who returned in his place? If these questions interest you, check out the History Uncovered podcast, brought to you by the digital publisher of All That's Interesting. History Uncovered explores the strange and obscure parts of history that you definitely didn't learn about in school. Hosted by the writers and editors of All That's Interesting, the show covers a wide variety of topics, ranging from the forgotten media spectacle of cave explorer Floyd Collins' death to the disappearance and possible cannibalization of Michael Rockefeller 
to the true story that inspired The Exorcist. With more than 100 episodes, you're bound to find that they've covered a topic that's especially interesting to you. And each month, they produce a special History Happy Hour episode, examining recent news in the fields of world history and archaeology, and commemorating important historical anniversaries. Come explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past by listening to History Uncovered, wherever you get your podcasts. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student-athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now, back to the show. The alphabet of Bin Sira is believed to have been composed anonymously between 700 and 1000 CE. The work was clearly inspired by a Hebrew collection of ethical lessons written in Jerusalem in the 2nd century BCE by one Bin Sira, but scholars believe the medieval work to be more of a satire. The author likes to address topics such as sexual intercourse, masturbation, urination, and flatulence. In fact, fair warning, any discussion of this composition, as well as certain aspects of Lilith, will get a bit body and weird. It has been suggested that the alphabet of Bin Sira may have actually been written by a Jew as a kind of burlesque comedy poking fun at his own traditions, or by a non-Jew as a kind of mockery of Judaism. One example of the parodic nature of the work is that its protagonist, Ben Sira, is said to be the grandson of the prophet Jeremiah, whom God has commanded not to marry or have children. Well, according to the alphabet of Ben Sira, Jeremiah did have a partner and had a daughter with her, but in an effort to obey God's command, would apparently practice onanism, or coitus interruptus, which at the risk of being crude is basically pulling out to spill one's seed. 
According to the author, the prophet Jeremiah did this once in bath water that his daughter afterward bathed in, resulting in his impregnating his own daughter, making Ben Sira both the grandson and son of the prophet Jeremiah. One can see why this work is apocryphal and rejected even back in the Middle Ages by Jewish philosophers and rabbis. The passage in which the author invents the modern legend of Lilith occurs when King Nebuchadnezzar asks Ben Sira to heal his son, and Ben Sira blames Lilith for the boy's illness and makes an amulet for his protection. He then explains who Lilith is to Nebuchadnezzar, saying God created her for Adam so that Adam wouldn't be alone and made her out of earth just as he had made Adam. However, they began to argue over sexual positions, with Lilith refusing to be on the bottom and Adam insisting that he was superior and therefore must be on top. Lilith protests that they are in fact equal, being made from the same stuff, and when Adam denies it, she abandons him, sprouting wings and flying away to the sea. Adam, of course, complains to God that his woman has run off, so God sends angels to bring her back. Lilith, however, refuses to return and claims she, quote, was created only to cause sickness to infants, end quote. The story concludes with Ben Sira explaining that because of the deal she struck with the angels sent after her, the amulet he had made would be effective at driving her off. The story further indicates that she is the mother of demons, many of whom are doomed to perish every day. The tale given in the alphabet of Ben Sira is the first known suggestion of her creation in Eden as Adam's wife. But the notion of her as a bringer of misfortune to children, which is also present, was likely inherited from her forerunner, Lamashtu. How she came to be known as the mother of demons is not especially clear, but it would come to define her persona. The next development of the Lilith myth came in another medieval Jewish text, the Zohar. This work was said to have been composed actually long before the alphabet of Ben Sira, in the second century CE, supposedly by the famed sage Rashbi or Shimon ben Yochai. But this claim appears to only have been made by the man who first promoted the text, Moshe ben Shimtov or Moses de Leon, a Spanish rabbi and Kabbalist, a kind of traditional mystic. The problem is that Moses de Leon was known to compose pseudepigraphal Kabbalistic tracts, meaning he falsely attributed his writings to other typically ancient and more authoritative sources, which increased their value. In other words, he was a forger, Indeed, de Leon's widow, according to one report, explicitly revealed that Moses de Leon wrote the Zohar himself in the 13th century and attached Rashbi's name to it in order to make it more valuable. Nevertheless, within 50 years, it was considered a core sacred text among many Spanish Kabbalists. 
Regardless of the authorship controversy, the book purports to be a collection of the teachings of the sage Rashbi, as well as commentaries on the Torah and allegorical narratives. In it, Lilith is discussed some 60 times, and in other Kabbalistic writings, her myth is further expanded. The notion that she was created of dust the same as Adam is reinforced, but in some Kabbalistic works, it is claimed that, for some unclear reason, when God made Lilith, he formed her not of good clean dust or soil, but rather of unclean filth. The idea that she fled paradise after a quarrel with Adam remains. However, in the Zohar, we learn that Adam actually impregnated Lilith before she fled, and that when she bears his children, they are demons or spirits, thus clarifying Lilith's role as a mother of demons. A further aspect clarified is her perpetual yearning for male companionship such that when she fled from paradise, at one point she found herself near God's throne, which was surrounded by cherubim, and since cherubs looked like little boys, she attached herself to them. But it was Adam she longed for, and Kabbalist tradition tells us she returned to the garden. But finding Eve with him, she schemed to be rid of her by tempting her thereby contributing to Adam's fall as well. But Kabbalist tradition is far more intricate than this. Kabbalist mystics actually rewrote much of the origin story of Lilith, suggesting that rather than a creation of God, she was a spontaneously generated divine creature, a kind of manifested aspect of God, an emanation from beneath his throne which kind of sounds like a fart to me. By this alternative version, she was only part of an androgynous dual entity, Lilith being the female half, and Samael, a rebel angel and adversary to God identified with Satan, was her male counterpart. Thus, Lilith and the devil were one and the same, so she was the serpent in the garden just as much as he was. Despite this development of Kabbalistic lore that has Lilith being more of a demoness from the start, she is always depicted as longing for Adam and for the company of all men. After the fall, she copulates with Cain, bearing many demons, and Adam, upon finding out that their expulsion from paradise and the murder of his son may have had to do with his connubial relationship to Lilith, decides to be celibate and not even lie with Eve for a whopping 130 years. However, during these many years, it's said that Lilith comes to Adam in his sleep, stealing his seed and begetting many demons, an entire demonic race, in fact, the Lilin, a plague upon mankind that are said to lurk in dark places such as doorways and wells, and in pits used as latrines. Thus, in the Middle Ages, a tale that likely began as satire was expanded upon by forgers and mystics into a full-fledged myth of a separately created woman, a nymphomaniac spirit who caused the fall of man and became a succubus, 
that mothered an army of demons. A simple explanation for the popularity of this growing and changing myth is that, much like her folkloric precursor, Lamashtu, Lilith served as a useful scapegoat and superstitious explanation for a variety of misfortunes and embarrassing or baffling experiences. While the philosophers and mystics spoke of her origin and nature, the everyday people only feared her and blamed her for things. Her nature as a succubus who stole the seed of men to give birth to demons meant that Lilith was commonly believed to be the cause of nocturnal emissions. Whenever a male had a wet dream, it was said that Lilith had come to him in his dreams and succeeded in arousing him to the point of impregnating her. Perhaps the men or boys who had these nocturnal emissions and were embarrassed by them or confused were consoled by this superstition. Men also likely claimed to their wives that they had better engage in frequent intercourse with them or it would be their fault when Lilith came to them. And it was thought that when Lilith succeeded in seducing a man, she gained some rights of cohabitation in the household. Thus, later artifacts that bear the name of Lilith, like incantation bowls and other charms, are inscribed as literal writs of divorce, declaring that Lilith had no rights there. The danger was even thought to exist when a man slept with his wife, whether he spilled his seed outside of her on purpose, if you'll excuse the frankness of my remarks, or even if some of his semen was lost accidentally. Lilith was thought to lurk in the bedsheets, waiting to steal it, and rather comically, men would shout out at the moment of orgasm, quote, release, release, neither come nor go, the seed is not yours. End quote. Nor were men alone the supposed victims of Lilith or her other succubi children, for some of her demon offspring were male incubi and were said to visit women in their sleep and impregnate them. Of course, one can easily imagine this scapegoat being quite handy if a woman needed to explain a seemingly inexplicable pregnancy and it must also have been used as a defense by rapists who could easily blame a woman's violation on some incubus. But this idea of the incubus seducing or assaulting women in dreams returns us to the notion of sleep paralysis and the incubus phenomenon, the sleep disorder in which one feels pressure on them and even has a vision of a dark figure or night hag the origin of the word nightmare. So Lilith and her brood can be seen as a superstitious explanation of those hypnopompic hallucinations, another parallel with revenants or vampires. And also like revenants, they were blamed for inexplicable deaths or illnesses. It was said that Lilith attacked pregnant women because of her resentment of Eve and her partnership with Adam. Thus, when a woman died in childbirth or afterward from the all-too-common childbed fever, it was said Lilith had taken her. 
Likewise, Lilith, like her antecedent Lamashtu, was said to prey upon children, was blamed for stillbirths and miscarriages, and was also blamed when children died in infancy. She was sometimes said to drink their blood, which aspect had likely been carried down through the centuries from superstitions about Lamashtu. But mostly, she was said to strangle babies in their cradles. As one might imagine, then, Lilith took the blame when the terrible and seemingly incomprehensible tragedy of crib death, or what we might today call sudden infant death syndrome, occurred. Indeed, even adults who died in their sleep were said to have been taken by Lilith, or her Lilin. It was said that after a succubus or incubus demon successfully seduced someone, they might change form and kill them. Thus, Lilith evolved to become a kind of catch-all superstition, a scapegoat for most mysterious phenomena related to sleep, maternity, and infancy. As we have seen, through syncretism, dubious satirical texts, pseudepigraphal forgeries, and mystical apocrypha, the myth of Lilith grew through the ages. But how, some may rightly ask, could an orthodox believer, a modern Christian or Jew who credits only canonical scriptures, ever come to believe in the figure of Lilith when she is only explicitly mentioned in Isaiah? and even then only in some versions. The answer comes in a unique interpretation of the Genesis creation story. The book of Genesis actually appears to have two versions of the story of God's creation of mankind in chapters one and two. In chapter one, verse 26, it says, then God said, let us make humans in our image according to our likeness, and concludes in the next verse, which states, Quote, so God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then in chapter two, it tells a slightly different version of the story, having God make man first, saying in verse seven, quote, then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being, end quote. Only later, beginning in verse 18, is woman created. Quote, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man." End quote. This double telling of the story is easily explained if one views Genesis as a combination of traditional texts which vary in their particulars. After all, chapters one and two have distinctly different styles, present the events of creation in a different order, and even use different words for God. The orthodox view of the separate accounts is just that chapter one presents a larger overview of the cosmological events of creation, and chapter two zooms in for a more human focus. But if one is wanting to find evidence of Lilith in Genesis, one will certainly be inclined to view the first creation story as being the creation of Adam and Lilith 
and the second as being an explanation of the reason for Eve's later creation. When God says it's not good for man to be alone, it must be because Lilith has fled from Adam, for God is omniscient and must have known such things even before creation. It's an interesting interpretation, but one can creatively interpret Scripture in many such ways to find evidence of things that aren't there. Consider the quote-unquote gap theory or gap creationism. To reconcile the Genesis story of creation with the geological time scale, theologians have suggested that each day of creation actually represented an entire age, whereas others have said that some extended gap occurred between the creations of the heavens and earth in verse 1 and the rest of the creative acts that are listed starting in verse 2. Such an interpretation allows believers to trust in a literal interpretation of the Bible without denying many of the findings of modern science, such as the age of the earth and the fossil record, dinosaurs, etc. However, it has also led some to believe that since there was a first creation and later a second creation that included mankind, then there must have existed some first attempt at creating humans a so-called pre-Adamic race. Unsurprisingly, in the 19th century, this notion was latched onto by racists, looking for some religious support for their ideas that non-white people are inferior, suggesting they are the descendants of a separate creation, a failed dry run at humanity. All of this from literally reading between the lines, a mythos of hatred born from the blank space between the first two verses in Genesis. We see how these ideas spread and evolve, and how they are used to justify superstition and false beliefs. The development of the apocryphal myth of Lilith is much the same, syncretistically adapted from ancient pagan folklore fictionalized and expanded on through the inventions and interpretations of charlatans and mystics until even modern theologians find arcane reasons to credit it because they want to. It seems like it should be enough to cause any honest, critical thinker to lose faith in such claims and interpretations. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness. This is the last full episode of the 2022 season. In some recent years, I've worked through the holidays on this podcast, but this year, once again, I'll be taking a hiatus until sometime early in January 2023. However, you can expect a holiday special at some point in December. If you miss my hot takes too much, you can always pledge on Patreon where I intend to release one or two exclusive minisodes during December, as usual. As always, thanks go out to my partner patrons, Diane Lane, Robert, Joe, Devlin, Jessica, Fred from Colorado, Robin N., Mateo, Katie, Rebecca, Don, Eunice, Juliet, Jonathan, Joshua, Logan, Lily, Sean Munger, John, and Michael. I wonder if any of you play my podcast at night, 
while you sleep so that it's like I visit you in your dreams. If so, if I'm understanding this correctly, it means I have somehow established legal residency in your home? This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows. Check out Redacted History with Andre White, telling the stories of underrepresented groups in American history. And enjoy the interviews and curated natural sounds of Pulse of the Planet, a tri-weekly sound portrait of planet Earth. Also, while I'm recommending podcasts, it's not on my network, but I have to recommend Rachel Maddow Presents Ultra. If you were interested in my history of times when American democracy was threatened, or if you want a historical parallel for a lot of things that have been happening in modern American politics, try it out. It is dumbfounding. Some music on this episode is copyright Alex Kish. Visit alexkishmusic.com and contact him to get compositions for your own projects. Additional music from Kai Engel, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. You can support the show by pledging on Patreon or on PayPal. Find those links in the show notes. Until next time, remember, ancient texts are often a mishmash, a collage of pieced together traditions, compilations of copied manuscripts, a palimpsest through which can be discerned traces of previous writings and ideas, often falsely attributed to some famous figure when they were actually composed by some faceless scribe. Can't we just appreciate them for what they are? A priceless cultural artifact that teaches us about our past without insisting they're actually some monolithic divine pronouncement? <laughs>